One of my coping mechanisms is, and they, they, all, they go real excited because they all look forward to it so much, uh, is, is that I, I, I go around and I take the most miserable, sad selfies I can take in front of the most miserable, sad, horrendous, grotesque backdrops I can find, of which there are a lot in Philadelphia. And I post them on Facebook and the caption always just reads, Philadelphia. <laughs> Podcast Junkies, episode seven zero. I like the sound of that. If you are new to the show, this is the podcaster's voice. It's the show where we talk to amazing, fun, engaging, quirky, cool, fresh. No one uses that word anymore. Podcasters <laughs> who have uh, something interesting to say. Uh, not only do they have interesting shows, but I think uh, even more interesting is the personality uh, they display behind the mic, if you will. And I uh, try to get out of them some um, interesting takes on life and uh, their experiences. And um, this week is no different. I speak to Bill Barol of Home Stories from L.A. Uh his podcast is, is new, but uh, Bill has a lot of experience in journalism. He used to work at Newsweek, and he's written articles for Fast Company uh, and a ton of other magazines. And I, I really enjoyed not only his narrative style and, and the way he was producing his podcast episodes, but as I started to do a bit more research and look at his stories, I really liked his tone. And I, I, I sort of had a feeling that we would hit it off, and uh, I'm happy to say that we did. Uh, we had a fantastic conversation, hour plus, another hour plus, probably hour and a half uh, episode. So this is a long one. And um, so find somewhere comfortable or, or you can even digest this in two parts. There's nothing that says you need to consume the whole podcast episode in one bite. And sometimes um, these are better consumed in sections. So find someplace comfortable. And uh, if it's the holiday season and you have some free time on your hands, then that's all the more reason to sit back and relax and drink your eggnog and listen to Bill and I um, chat for a little bit about uh, a wide range of topics. And uh, he's, he's an interesting, interesting guy. And he lives here in California in Santa Monica. So I'm looking forward to getting together with him um, in the new year, which we've promised each other we will do. If you missed last week's episode, I spoke to Mark Asquith from the UK, another charming fellow and another really just all over the map discussion. We talked about uh, DC Comics and uh, and obviously podcasting and uh, Christmas sweaters and uh, fear of the water. <laughs> So check that out, episode sixty nine, uh, the one before this one. It's uh, that was that one was a lot of fun as well. So um, stay tuned at the end of the episode for the retention hashtag, which new listeners will um, understand is something that I mention at the end of an episode um, to see if you've been listening and paying attention, and if you're part of the the podcast junkies junkies clan, and uh, regular folks know exactly what I'm talking about. So. Let's get into the episode. It's a long one, so uh, no no point in putting it off. Bill Barol from Home Stories from L.A. 
I know. I was just literally thinking about that as as I was re-listening to the episode yesterday. Everybody and I was like, gets it wrong. Girl. Everybody gets. Nobody has ever, ever, ever gotten it right. <laughs> and imagine being, you know, being a little kid growing up in Philadelphia and shopping in the Husky section, and people think your name is Barrel. That's that's just a recipe for a healthy psyche, man. Okay, this. Uh... I, I don't know if you've listened to any of the episodes. This is very informal, and uh, that might there, there might be no better way to kick off the uh, the interview than with it's that, it's your show, Harry. Than with that comment. So, <laughs> Bill Burrell, thank you so much for joining me on Podcast Junkies. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, the fascinating part about uh, podcasting is, and and we, I'm sure you've you're experiencing this as well because um, is is this. Fa- concept of discovering people that you know the whole world knew about already and just because you're not in the, in a certain space that you, you don't and you're we're just in our podcasting bubble and so i think you um were doing some a, a bit of pr in the beginning when you launched your podcast which is home stories from la a fascinating fascinating show which we're going to deep dive in um and i guess you were getting the word out so i got an email and and i and i obviously with a name like podcast junkies a lot of podcasters send you emails about shows. Yeah, right. And, and, right, and sure. I'm, and I'm like, okay, I gotta, I gotta put this in the queue to check out. And, um, and, and I tell people this all the time. Like, first impressions are everything. And when I first heard your show, I was just, you know, blown away by the, the quality, the, just the attention to detail, the storytelling, the, the, the soundscapes, the music, just basically oh. everything. And I'm like, thank you, thank yeah. you, I appreciate that. And uh, I was like, wow, this is, this is legit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, yeah, I, I appreciate your saying that because I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing. I have no background in it and I'm making it up as I go along. So that's, that's very gratifying to hear. Thank you. And so, uh, what's great is that the episodes are short enough for you to binge on. Right. So I, and I wasn't that far behind at the point when I jumped in. So I think you were about, uh, no, I think you had just maybe done the first or the second one. Cause I think I commented on that and, uh, and I was just like, it's an interesting take. I don't know if anyone else is doing something similar, but um, I'm, I'm wondering what the initial reaction to the podcast has been so far. Well, it's been uh, it's been really gratifying. People have been generous. They've been kind. Um, you know, I, I early on uh, one of the ways in which I got lucky was um, was Devin and Eric at the Tambor uh, sort of adopted my show, and I started uh, having conversations with them, uh, chat conversations with them, although you never know whether you're talking to Devin or Eric. So it's, it's always a little bit of a challenge, but they're, they're great. And if, you know, if, if your listeners don't know about the timbre, they should, it's this really smart, thoughtful online journal about podcasting and they're just great people. And one of the things that either Devin or Eric said to me early on was, and I was very new in this, in this world was, um, you're going to find that people in this world are really kind. They're really generous. Um, and I, you know, I have found that to be true. Uh, there are people who sort of pick up what you're doing and they want to help you advance it, get it out there in any way they can. And that's so, so having been picked up early on by, by people like Devin and Eric and, you know, your interest, which I appreciate, um, you know, I, I just think people have, have really been very generous about this thing. Um, you know, the challenge is, and I'm at a, at a, at a point right now where I've just wrapped up a, a sort of introductory season um, almost as a kind of proof of concept for the thing more than anything else. I've done, well, I have an eccentric 
numbering system for my show, which confuses everybody, including me. But I've done, you know, either six or seven or eight episodes, depending on on how you do the math. So it's really been a short first season. I've only been out there since about the first week in September. Um, and, uh, you know, I've just been I, I've really been very gratified by the response. People have been generous about it. And um, coming to it from the background that I have, which is print, I've spent my whole life in print to kind of come into this new space and feel welcomed um, has been has been great. So where um, we'll definitely di- uh, dig in a bit, and because you, you do have um, a, a, a rich background in, in journalism, a rich uh, impoverished background <laughs> in journalism, yeah. And uh, I'm I'm wondering, um, you know, there's a lot of different tangents here, but I'm wondering, sticking with the podcasting for a second, when you first had the idea that. Uh, some of the uh, number one when you had the idea to podcast and when you came up with the concept of of what you use now for, uh, what what is the theme now for your show short answer june uh long answer is um i, I had kind of dipped a toe into podcasting a few years ago and i listened to the ones everybody listens to i listened to marin i listened to this american life when they made their way into the podcast world and i liked what i was hearing and then i moved on and did other things because i have a short attention span but um a little earlier this year in june i was getting ready to fly back and forth to the east coast and um it was around the time that that podcasts really started popping and I knew I had two six-hour plane flights ahead of me. And so I downloaded, I can't remember whether I was using Castro or Overcast at that point. I think I was using Castro. And I just filled up Castro with stuff for the flight. And I listened all the way out there. And in the process of this family visit, I was visiting with my sister in Massachusetts. Um, uh, my sister and I are very close. And uh, we were talking at one point about the notion of, of living an intentional life. This is the thing that my sister is big in. And one of the problems, I think, with being a freelance writer is uh, that you tend to drift from assignment to assignment. It's easy to drift. And when she said that, something sort of snapped into focus for me, which is that I, I wasn't really leading my professional life with any particular kind of intentionality and hadn't for a little while. I've been going from assignment to assignment. Uh, most recently, I've been writing short humor pieces for The New Yorker, mostly online. Before that, I'd written a couple of books. One was self-published, and one was published by a publisher who was so small and obscure that, I, for all practical purposes, I did self-publish. Um, and I'd sort of been, you know, bopping along from thing to thing. And I and when I had that conversation with my sister, it sort of snapped something into focus for me, which is that I really wanted a big project to get my arms around. And I hadn't had that since uh, I wrote my novel a few years ago which is called Thanks for Killing Me and is still excellent, by the way. Um, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, available at Amazon and elsewhere. Um, and so I started to think about that. And on the way back from Boston into LAX, I listened to another six hours of podcasts. And that was when the penny dropped for me or the dime dropped. What is the expression? <laughs> the, a coin, a coin of some denomination dropped for me. And uh, I got hooked in particular on those plane flights uh, on the on Nate DiMeo's show, The Memory Palace, which oh, I know yeah. you're a fan of as well. Love I mean, Nate DiMeo is totally my, my podcasting man crush. And that and I can tell you the exact episode it was that 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 hooked me. It was an episode called Shadow Boxing, uh, which is, you know, in the time since then, people have come to me and, they, you know, you meet some people who don't know a lot about podcasting and you tell them what it is and then they say, well, what's a podcast I should listen to and what's an episode I should listen to? And shadowboxing 
is the episode that I always point them toward first because it's so beautiful and it's so perfect. Everything he does is, is just magnificent. And I got really inspired on that plane trip back. And I thought, oh, yeah, podcast. I could try this. I didn't have any confidence at that point that I could actually do it. But I thought that there were probably three things involved in the decision of whether to try. One was, um, you know, what are the three challenges? One is, okay, I have to, I have to put together a space to record in. I had a cedar closet in my office. I put up acoustic paneling. And then I spent weeks ordering things from Amazon and having them sent back to Amazon. And the truck was pulling up and the truck was pulling away and trying out microphones. And all of that, if you have any kind of technical bent or you're an early adopter or geek, that was super fun. Trying out microphones and mixers and all of that stuff. Um, and I finally landed on the rig that I have now. And then, by the way, we went to see Nate DiMeo's show at uh, Hollywood Forever, his live show that he did earlier this year. My wife and I went. Nice. And, I f- and I found out that he tracks under a mattress cover in his garage. <laughs> and this, this, this was after I'd spent weeks kidding out this beautiful little recording space that I now have for myself in my office. And it was a real lesson for me because I thought, oh, okay, so I guess it's not about the recording space so much. Yeah. All right. So that was good to know. That was lesson one. Uh, The second thing was I had no background in audio production, but I figured I could learn it. You know, I have an affinity for software and I haven't really done anything in audio production since I was in college radio a million years ago. Uh, But I got Logic Pro and I taught myself to use it. And the thing that the third thing was and the thing where I figured I might have a little bit of an edge was that I want I knew I wanted to do something that was journalistic and I had a background in journalism. Um, I didn't have to teach myself how to go out and report because I knew I wanted to do reported essays, reported stories. And so my background in reporting and my affinity for reporting was um, that allowed me to jumpstart the process for myself a little bit. I, I I can't actually remember what the question was at this point, Harry. I apologize. But that's kind of that's kind of how I if your question was, where'd you get the idea to do a podcast? That's where the idea to do a podcast came from. Yeah, it's about the genesis. Um, so I, I know that there's a curious listener um, wondering what actually your setup is. So you want to quickly cover what you're using at the moment? Gear, actually? Yeah, actually gear. Oh, yes, I'd love to. Are you kidding me? Uh, I'm talking into a Shure SM7B, um, which is uh, the Marin microphone. And um, that I run that through a cloud lifter and into an Onyx Blackjack and then on into Logic Pro running on a MacBook Air. Uh, for remote recording, which is kind of an important part of what I do because I have to go out and report, um, I, I had, by sheer luck, I had a, a very good digital voice recorder that I was just using t- for print interviews. Um, and that's the Sony PCM. M10. I have a Rode NTG2 microphone. Rode, is that how you say it? Yeah, Rode. Rode, yeah. Rode, yeah. Uh, that I run into the PCM10. And I have a little desktop stand and a couple of windscreens um, and a notebook in a little compact Timbuktu bag. And I'm ready to go, you know, and throw a MacBook Air in there. And it's amazing to me that you can be a complete recording and editing and with an internet connection, you can, a distribution pod all in a bag you can sling over your shoulder i mean these are amazing times that we're living in so that's the rig that i use i'm sure there's people jotting down furiously and (laughs) because you sound amazing um and i think it's a testament to the fact that you have the technical the tech or, or geek background that you jumped into this with both feet um and for someone who's doing this for the first time i think the way you went about it um might speak to maybe how you handle other new projects or how you've handled new projects in the past. But I think it's just 
amazing to me that that you sound so great for someone who you know by your own words was new to podcasting and and the fact well, that thanks you, and and I, I guess you know it's obviously why i was so interested because you know typically when i i, I want to talk to people i want to talk to people who've been doing it for a while just you know you want to see that people are serious but i i knew right away sure. that from your first episode that this was something that you took seriously well yeah a- absolutely i mean it's a you know there's a low bar to entry in podcasting yeah. and both the great thing and the horrible thing is that anybody can do it you know the tools are now available to everybody, the tools to produce, the tools to distribute. Um, and that means, you know, when anybody can do it, anybody will do it. And it's great. It's democratizing. You know, that is a fabulous thing. You know, let the worker seize control of the means of production, right? But there's a lot of stuff out there, uh, you know, and everybody knows this, that is kind of unbearable to listen to because of that. And, uh, you know, editorially and technically and I knew that I wanted to do something that was going to be that was going to land on the ears. Well, it was going to be a pleasure to listen to. And I'm I'm striving for that now. I haven't gotten there by any means, but that's always the goal for me. Um, After the first episode, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who's a writer who lives up in in Portland. And I said, what did you think? And, And he sort of urged a more kind of conversational approach on me. Um, I script these things out because I kind of want every word in place. And I thought about what he had to say. And, um, you know, and I realized that there's a certain value to a conversational approach to sort of having a conversation like you and I are, are having now the give and take and the rhythm of it. It's great, but it was not what I wanted to do. I, I remember being out to dinner with my wife in the planning stages of this, cause there was a three or four month process of pre-production and planning before I ever released the first episode. And we were at a restaurant, we were at a Japanese restaurant and, and I said to her, I want to do something like this. And I pointed to my plate and she had no idea what I was talking about because it was gibberish. <laughs> and I said, no, I, I want to do something that's sort of, that looks like a beautiful plate of food. It's meticulously composed. It's com- meticulously arranged and everything is in place. For me, the challenge of that is, you know, you want to, you don't want it at the same time, you don't want it to be stultified. You don't want it to be frozen in place. You want it to be lively and animated and have some humor and some spark and some intelligence to it. So I'm always kind of trying to balance those those elements. That's a fantastic example because when you think about I'm, I'm a bit of a – my wife and I are foodies ourselves and we just love going out to have fantastic meals. And you can tell from the moment the plate lands on your table that – uh, by virtue of the way it's prepared, presented, smells, um, and eventually tastes, yeah. that there's a story behind the preparation of that dish. Yeah, and you know you're in good hands, too. And yeah. that, to, that, to me, is a really important thing. You know, uh, if I watch a movie, and in the first... I, I can get on or off a movie in the first five minutes. Um, if you watch a movie and the first five, I'm trying to think of a movie that, that caught me that way. I, I'll, pro- I'll be able to think of one. But if in the first five minutes of a movie, you can say to yourself, oh, okay, I'm in good hands here. These people know what they're doing and they're going to treat me fairly. You know, they're not going to bash me over the head with some kind of cheap emotional trick for some unearned uh, effect or connection to the material. They're going to draw me in honestly. They know what they're doing. Then I'm in for the whole ride, you know? But if I feel like I've been, like I've been cheated or treated like a rube, 
I'll turn off a movie just like that. Um, you know, a show, a piece of music, it can be anything. And what I wanted people to feel with, the, with these things, for better or worse, was that I had a clear idea of what it was I wanted to do and that I was going to bring them along with me. And I wanted them to feel like they were in good hands. And so you picked as the topic for your show this theme of home. And it's, it's such a loaded word, and it's something that a lot of people yeah. can resonate with. And you'll ask a thousand people, and you'll get a thousand different answers. And, exactly. And you mentioned that in the intro episode. So I'm wondering, as you've been working through the episodes, um, what your thoughts were uh, about that word and, and why you selected that as the theme for your show. It was actually my wife's idea because okay. I, came, I came home from that trip knowing that or having an idea that I wanted to try to do a podcast, but I had no idea what I wanted to do. I had a general idea of the kind of style that I wanted it to, to incorporate. I knew I wanted it to be reported, um, but I didn't really, I didn't have a theme. And Jennifer Cecil, my wife, is, you know, my, my consigliere, and we were talking about this. And, uh, and she came up with the idea to do something about home. She was talking about a conversation we had had some time earlier uh, where we were sort of talking about, we moved out here from New York in 1990. And at some point, it became our home. At some point, we left New York in the rearview mirror and Los Angeles became our home. I, can't, I, I couldn't tell you or I couldn't have told you at that moment when that moment was that the transition happened, when New York stopped being our home. Actually, Jennifer was living in Portland, Maine at the time. It was a whole complicated thing, flying back and forth, little planes. But we ended up out here together in 1990. And at some point, it became our home. And she said, how did that happen? And I started to think about the story that uh, I ended up using for the introductory episode, episode zero, which is part of my, you know, my eccentric numbering scheme. I, I kind of outsmarted myself on that <laughs> because people talk about episodes now and people have no idea which one I'm talking about. But that's the story that I tell in the introductory episode of, of Home, uh, the story of, of the moment when, I, in retrospect, I think this place became home as opposed to some other place. Um, so it seemed like a sort of emotionally rich area, an emotionally resonant area. And I, you know, I, I think it is true that if you are to stop 10 people on the street and say, look, I'm going to say a word to you. Tell me the first thing that pops into your head. The word is home. You'll get eight or 10 different answers. I mean, for some people, it's a place. For some people, it's a thing. For some people, it's an idea. For some people, it's an aspiration. For some people, it's a dream. For some people, it's geographic. For some people, it's emotional. For some people, it's something they're running away from. For some people, it's something that they spend their whole lives trying to run back toward. Um, so it gives you a kind it's, it's a big tent to tell a whole bunch of different kinds of stories about something that everybody has an emotional response to. But I think people don't tend to think a lot about what it means. You know, one of the taglines for the show that I use on Twitter and Facebook and, and God knows everywhere else in the universe where I'm trying to flog this thing is, what do we mean when we talk about home? Um, and that's kind of the overarching question of this series. What do we mean when we talk about home? It's... It's one of the, the reasons why um, the show resonated with me, and it's, and it's on a, a lot of levels. So I myself moved from New York as well, and uh, my wife and I moved um, now almost a year and a half ago uh -huh. and from New York to L.A. So I was, the minute I heard that your story, I was like, oh, wow, I used to live in the um, – and I used to live – when I was single, I used to live in the uh, Lower East Side, uh -huh. and I grew up in Yonkers. Yeah. And so 
um, there was this feeling of like where we've ne- never actually owned a home. We never had a mortgage, my, my wife and I. And we're kind of of the same mind there. Just it's been this nice idea of like we've lived in Atlanta. You know, I had to go there for work for a while, and and this concept of you know the cliche home is where the heart is, yeah. but I mean home is where you make it, and it's just um, it is an interesting concept to think about the moment when you feel like oh this this is you know where's your home and and, and recently it's easy to do that in LA because the weather helps that much more to get to get you acclimated to help you feeling like you're in a place where you're comfortable and my wife's from Colombia so she's used huh. to the hot weather and and so I think um it's where your friends are too or, or where your, yeah. your your network of people that you congregate with your tribe if you will yeah are, I think so there's a lot of moving parts in that um, and I was reminded of the of of the meaning of home recently because I I go I do go back to the East Coast to visit my parents and it's you know empty nest because there's there's uh, sure. four children and my I live in LA now my other brother lives in New Orleans because his wife is from there my uh, sister just moved to France of all places and took two of the grandkids with with them um, and my other brother is in Mayo Pack New York which is an hour away. So it's interesting because, you know, the, the holidays are coming and you, yeah, know, you guys are scattered. Yeah, we're scattered. And, and you know, as, as parents, I'm sure that has an effect because they're in their home, right? They're in the home where we all grew up. And but yet I wonder if it, if it just it feels less like home because the family's not there. Yeah, I think a lot of those issues come. I mean, as we're talking, it's, you know, what is it? It's a week or so before Christmas. And man, those issues for for good or ill, they bubble up this time of year, you know? I mean, I, I grew up in Philadelphia and I have a complicated relationship with Philadelphia now because I... You know, there are some family, there's been some family stuff going on in the last few years. I have an elderly parent and she's not well. And my sister and I spend a lot of time, my sister much more so than I, because she lives closer. She lives in Massachusetts also because she's a better person than I am. <laughs> uh, she spends more time traveling back and forth to Philadelphia and I go when I can. And so, uh, you know, I, I have these these complicatedly negative feelings now about the city that's the city of my birth, you know, my hometown. You know, my friends now know that when I go to Philadelphia on these trips, which are not fun trips for me now, um, one of my coping mechanisms is, and they, they, all, they go real excited because they all look forward to it so much, uh, is, is that I, I, I go around and I take the most miserable sad selfies I can take in front of the most miserable, sad, horrendous, grotesque backdrops I can find, of which there are a lot in Philadelphia. And I post them on Facebook, and the caption always just reads, Philadelphia. <laughs> so I, I have these complicated feelings about it, and it's the place I grew up. It's the place where I'd lived longer than anywhere else until I'd moved to L.A. I did that calculation a little while ago. Oh, we've now lived in L.A., longer than I've lived anywhere else. But before that, it was Philadelphia. I lived there until I went to college at 18. And my sister and I talk now about, we, you know, we wonder, are we, are we always going to feel this way about Philadelphia? Or, you know, at some point after my mom passes away at some point and we find ourselves back there, are we going to be able to reclaim some of the feelings that we had about our home when we were younger? Will it become a pleasurable experience for, for us again? And, and the answer is, I don't know. You know, we'll find out. So home is a, is a complicated construct. Um, it, has a lot, it has a lot of parts to it. And uh, no two people quite have the same sense 
of, of what it means or what the associations are for, for good or ill. And that's one of the things that appealed to me about it as a, as a topic. And as soon as Jennifer pitched it, I knew right away that if I wanted to do something story-driven, it was a great umbrella to, to do it under. And I'm sure it gives you no shortage of um, topics or, or just jumping off points you know, for you to, to use as fodder for upcoming shows. It feels it it feels like it ought to be that way. And yet <laughs> I've rejected a lot of ideas. I've had a couple of stories that I've started and not finished because or shelved, put them put them away for the second season, which is going to start in January. Um, you know, I, I have a I, I couldn't tell you what goes into a good episode of this show other than and I suspect that a lot of the podcasters you've spoken to will tell you the same thing, except that it's just a story that I would want to hear. It's mm. a story that appeals to me, you know, and it's that it's that tell me a story thing. You know, it's yeah. feeling like you're in good hands. It's tell me a story. I will sit back. I will give you my attention because it's not an insignificant thing to ask for people's attention. You know, my shows are right around 20 minutes long, 16, 18, 22, 24 minutes. And to ask somebody to sit down and focus for that period of time in this climate that we live in is not an insignificant thing. So it has to be a story, first of all, that that I would want to sit down and listen to for for that length of time. Um, so, you know, there are a bunch of stories that haven't quite made the grade, that haven't panned out, the reporting hasn't panned out, um, and I'm always looking. I'm, I'm reading the papers, I'm reading the blogs, I'm talking to friends. Um, you know, the stories are out there, but you gotta, you know, you gotta, you gotta dig for them a little bit. I imagine as the popularity of the show increases, you'll have a lot more people submitting you ideas as well. I hope so. You know, I, I would love to hear people's stories, idea, uh, people's story ideas about, you know, what it means to be at home around Southern California. I mean, I've had some people say to me that they think it's kind of a narrow construct, Southern California. And, and you know, the only thing I can tell them is that it's kind of a practical thing because I'm, I'm actually reporting these stories myself. So it has to be someplace that I can get to. You know, the farthest afield I've gone so far is out about 400 miles out in the Mojave Desert. Uh, out to a town called Amboy on the old Route 66, and that involved an overnight stay in Barstow, which I would recommend to anybody who is is looking for a good time. Stay overnight in Barstow. Um, and so they have to be stories that are, you know, within a reasonable circumference from my, from my home. But I do think that, um, you know, home as a concept is a big tent. And I, I think that, you know, for good or sometimes for ill, there's this interest in, in Los Angeles uh, around the country or maybe even around the world as a place. I think people are interested in New York. They're interested in Los Angeles. It's one of the places that people have associations with for good or ill. Um, so, uh, but yeah, absolutely, you know, if there are people who, uh, who want to chip in ideas to the website, God knows, I, I, I'll take a good idea from anywhere I can get it. Did you see the, the three-hour documentary about the history of uh, movie making in L.A.? No, which one? There've been so many of them. I don't know it's, this it's, one. It's, it's, it came. Uh, I don't know when it came out. I, we saw it recently, and it's one of those things where you start watching a movie and you don't pay attention to the the, the time bar shows how long it is. Yeah. And then as I'm watching it, I'm like, this is long. And then I paused it, and the, when you pause it, it shows you where you are. <laughs> and I've been watching like. 90 minutes of it and we were just slightly past halfway i was like holy shit what the hell is this thing but that's that thing right it's tell me it's tell me a story yeah. you're drawn in you're in good hands and you're along for the ride you know i love that feeling when that happens when you don't know how much time has gone by and you look at the clock and you realize you've you know you've been you've been watching this thing for however long it's been that's that's a great feeling to be so swept up in a story and so and to have such confidence in the people who are telling you the story that 
you lose track of time. That's, that's a great thing. And it might, you know, uh, give you some ideas because it, it, the idea of the documentary was, um, LA as the backdrop for movies and all the, 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 the role that LA has played in movies, you know, Blade Runner and, you know, Terminator and, yeah, and yeah, yeah. hundreds, obviously. That oh I, yeah. Yeah. This is the LA in the movies thing. Yeah, LA in the movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was fascinating to watch, especially, and you tend to appreciate these things more when you actually live in the town and you're like, Oh, that's that place. And that's that yeah, place. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yo, oh, that's a great idea. I'll look for that. Thank yeah. you. The, and so one of the things that, um, also resonated with me with your introductory episode was you talked about, um, some of the, the defining moments that really, uh, resonated for you in terms of identifying LA as your home. And, and one of them was the, uh, the earth, the earthquake that you went through. The Northridge earthquake in 94. Yeah. 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 So talk a little bit about why that had such an impact on you. Well, we'd been out here for about four years by that time. And I was still very much in that period of, of, oh no, no, LA is not my home. No, no. I'm, you know, I come from New York. I, this is LA is fine, but it's no New York, you know? And I, I've known a lot of people who've come out here and I was working for Newsweek at the time and I, and I had an opportunity to come out here and try writing on a sitcom, a sitcom job dropped in my lap in a way that I subsequently found out never happens in the actual world. I was incredibly lucky. And, uh, I went back to New York and then, and then Jennifer and I decided to move out here together and we came back for good in 1990. So in 1994, you know, we were still we were still pretty new as Angelinos, and um, the quake was at four thirty in the morning, and I think it was January of ninety four. Woke us up. Um, sounded like a freight train rolling past our window. The sound was the most frightening thing uh, I've ever been through. And then, of course, there was the shaking. Um, and so it was. You know, for people who were here or who have been through something of that scale. Uh, you know, it's, it's just an absolutely terrifying experience, particularly when it happens in the middle of the night and it wakes you up and disorients you and scares you to death all at once. And we, we managed to, it lasted, I don't know, however long it lasted. It, it felt like forever. And we got up and we kind of wandered around our apartment for a while. We were living in a, in a fairly new apartment in Santa Monica. And it was one of these buildings that's designed to move when there's an earthquake. So it moved and everything in our apartment was on the floor. All the glassware was shattered. Wow. And a couple hours later, the sun came up and I said to Jennifer, you know, I just, I got to get out of here. I just, I got to, I got to stretch my leg. I got to get some fresh air in my lungs. I just can't be in this apartment anymore. So the sun had just come up and we went out and I, and I won't, I don't want to entirely spoil the story, but we ended up, we ended up having donuts for breakfast. We found a place that was open and we had donuts for breakfast. And I bit into the donut and I got this feeling of elemental pleasure and satisfaction that really only a good donut can provide, right? <laughs> you know, as my teeth sink into the donut and I feel the sugar hit my bloodstream and I realized I was, I was alive. Yeah. I was okay. You know, my, my, my wife at the time, my girlfriend, you know, the woman I love, she's okay. The stuff that broke, it was just stuff. We're alive. We're going to be okay. And there's something about a moment where you get scared to death in a place. And then it seems to me that whatever you do next is an active decision. You either leave that place, you flee, you run for your life, or you stay. And we chose to stay. And it was a choice. We may not have even thought of it at the time as a choice, but it was definitely a choice to stay because there were people who left L.A. after the quake. So we stayed. Well, what did that mean? 
it meant we subsequently realized that this was the place that had become our home. And when I say I subsequently realized it, I don't think I focused on that moment as the moment where L.A. or a moment where L.A. became our home until I started to, to write the introductory episode of, of this series. So it was a long time after the fact. So that, um, you know, I think these moments in our lives sometimes pass us by in the moment and you don't realize it and you kind of only realize what's, uh, what's transpired years later after you have a little more experience and a little more humility um, and, and you kind of realize what's, what's transpired in your life. So, so that was the moment for us. But I think everybody has a moment where the place they are becomes their home. They, may just, they, they, they just may not realize it at the time. The reason why I related so strongly to that uh, experience, and, it, and it's what happens when you hear a good story, there's something that you pull out of it that you sort of personalize. Um, yeah. And I think that's some of the best stories do that was the fact that I, I, I was in New York for 9-11. Oh, yeah. And so I vividly remember that moment, the, the morning or later that afternoon, if you will, um, after everything had happened and people just start stumbling out of their apartments, the phones don't work. Yeah. And uh, I, I, like you, I remember I went to go get Greek food <laughs> and I had this yeah. like uh, souvlaki platter that obviously I, I could tell you like specifically about everything that was there and I, and you're, you're eating your first meal after an, an event like that. And, you're, and it, it was exactly how you described it. Like this feeling of like, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know that I thought at that moment that everything was going to be all right because it was yeah, like a, a, it's very a, different. a shit show yeah. at that point. But yeah. it was just a feeling like, to, uh, I think, it, you know what it was? It was um, connecting with other humans. Uh, yes. You know, and just like, oh, just we New York City had an incredible small town feel at that moment. And it was just so crazy that a city could feel like, you know, like something out of uh, the Waltons or something. Like that. Yeah. 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 We were out here, you know, it was not too long after we had moved out here and we were watching it on TV, but, uh, yeah, you know, there's, I don't know, maybe it's food, you know, maybe yeah. there's something about food. There's an elemental human thing about food. It connects you with other people. It binds you with other people. It's, it's satisfying in a way that doesn't have anything to do with, um, with with external events, I, food. You know that that'll be the next series. Food stories from LA, <laughs> and then the third one will be music. Because yes. what you, uh, I'm assuming there's a, a bit of thought that goes into it. Because every single episode that I've listened to uses um, sounds, you know, the background sound or the ambient sound, or as as you as you tell the story, plays a major role. And then the music that you select um, is. Uh, is really important in terms of tying you to a certain place in time. And obviously with the episode um, of In Their Room with, with uh, the story of the Beach Boys, you know, that was obviously played a prominent role. But in all of the other episodes, I think you've, it seems like you've made a cognizant effort to allow uh, the music to, to be another part of the story. Yeah, music is really important in in constructing those beautiful little plates of food that I want to construct. You know, you can do a lot of stuff with music. You can bridge uh, audio segments. You can um, underscore a moment. You can bring out an emotion. Um, 
you know, I, I've learned a lot about about the ways that music can be valuable in telling in telling audio stories. You know, the the challenge. Well, there's a bunch of challenges. Some legal, some technical, <laughs> some ethical. But um, yeah, there's just they music has become a much more important thing in my process of telling these stories than I thought it would be initially. One of the things that Jennifer and I talked about during that period between June when I got the idea in September when I published the first episode was, well, what's the role of music going to be in this thing? And, and you know, uh, the, the Memory Palace has been my template for a lot of stuff. And I was so, I, I still am really uh, moved by the way Nate DeMeo uses music uh, in, his, in his stories. Um, but uh, so... Uh, you know, my initial idea was, well, let me just steal what this guy does. And then I realized <laughs> that I couldn't possibly do it as well as he does it. So I sort of knocked me back on my heels and I thought, all right, well, what's the way? I, OK, all right, fine. You know, now what's the way I would do it? You know, I don't have to do everything the way Nate DeMeo does it. What's the way I would do it? And so I'm, I'm you know, I'm sort of constantly fine tuning that. I, you know, like I say, I'm still I'm very new in this podcast thing. And I really have very few episodes up there. Uh, in this initial season, which I did almost as more of a proof of concept than anything else. So I'm, I'm constantly sort of fine tuning those elements, you know, the, the found sound, the narration, uh, and the music, all of those things that they kind of shift in importance from episode to episode. Some of the stories are music centric, like episode two in their room, which was about the guy who, um, the one you mentioned is uh, this guy who took it upon himself to put up a monument, a California state historic monument at the place where the Beach Boys' home was and no longer is in Hawthorne, California, and what was involved for him in doing that. Well, you know, yeah, you want to you use some Beach Boys music in that. You want to be judicious about it because you want to be respectful of the fact that it's intellectual property and the Beach Boys are famously litigious. Um, so you, you don't want to be the one that's 14K in the hole. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> which is a reference to that story, which people can go out and listen to on their own. Um, you know, one of the great resources for this show is this is this guy in Portland, Oregon. I wish I could remember his real name, but uh, but he uh, apologized for not knowing it. But uh, but his his music name is Pottington Bear, and he's put out this enormous library of fabulous music, which is if I've read the Creative Commons licenses correctly, which is free for non commercial use and his stuff is and he has literally hundreds and hundreds of tracks available and so i've used a ton of his stuff um it it comes in every flavor every shape and size every emotion every tonality and he's very generous to put this stuff out there so that's been a really important resource for me um yeah music is 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 extremely important in, in telling the stories that i want to tell we'll make sure um I'll look it up, but if you find it after the fact, we'll make sure to include it in the show notes to make sure he gets his uh, due credit. Yeah, it's a great resource for for what I believe to be pod safe music uh, for podcasters, and the guy is very generous to put it out there, and it's it's great, great stuff. What's uh, what's fascinating ab ab about um, podcast episodes for me, um, as a testament to how much they resonate, is if you can remember where you were when you listened to that episode. And so oh. I literally remember that I, my, we had a, a van that we bought for Burning Man. We went to Burning Man and, I was, and we were trying to sell it. And uh, so long story short, it got towed and I was walking to the tow yard and I, and I, cause I, and I, cause I had paid and then you, where you pick up the cars like a couple of blocks away. 
And so I said, well, let me get caught up on, on my podcasts. And I, 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 that episode was there. And so I just vividly remembered like hearing the Beach Boys music and crossing like the street and thinking about the fact that there's like a place where that has this Beach Boys shrine. And it just solidified like that, that, um, the moment in time now, like that episode reminds me of that moment in time when I went to get my car, but. Oh, that's right. Thank you. I really, that's, that's a great compliment. I really appreciate that. That's really nice. And so, um, and the the reference to the music, I was reminded of that as as I was re-listening to the episodes with uh, number one, House on the Hill, about Herman Stein, who's obviously someone I've ne- I'd never even heard of. Neither had I. And, yeah, and it's and it's great to just get this backstory about, um, you know, what a fantastic uh, producer he was, and I'll, I'll definitely invite the listener to go listen to that episode um, because you you give a um, uh, an anecdote about someone telling the story and how he played the the music back from memory and just how, how fantastic he was. But the one thing that stood out was um, when you were trying, or it was something about trying to track down the Herman Stein and the guy you were talking to said, uh, that dead guy is on the phone. Yeah. And then you put in the music and I was yeah. like, perfect, perfect, perfect. So yeah. Cool. That's, that's a guy named David Schechter, who was sort of the musical executor of this guy, Herman Stein. And Herman Stein was a staff composer at Universal International Pictures in the 1950s. He was a contemporary of Henry Mancini's. They were on the, the music staff together at Universal. And he sort of made his name by writing music, composing music for, uh, for, for monster movies and for outer space movies and horror, not horror movies so much, but monster movies and space movies. And he was kind of the king of that. But it was kind of a factory system. And he, he, the factory eventually kind of ate him up and spit him out. And he ended up kind of a lonely old man living in a house in Los Feliz that subsequently, many years later, came to be bought and occupied by friends of mine. And that's how I backed into the story. I had a dim recollection of my friend Mark telling me a story about his house. And I took him to lunch and I said, tell me that story again. What was it? It was something about your house because it was very early in the process. And, and I didn't uh, I, I was I was trolling for stories desperately. And he told me a few stories about his house. And I said, no, no, that's not it. That's not it. That's not it. And he said, you know, really what you want to do is he said, you want you want my husband's house and his husband also named Mark. Uh, they own a house just down the street from the first Mark's house. It gets a little, it gets a little complicated. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, I had dimmer. He told me something about this. What was it? And he said, the guy who used to live there was this film composer, Herman Stein. And I said, okay, tell me that story. And as soon as he told me that story, and there was a particular moment in that story, and I kind of don't want to spoil it, but there was a moment don't. involving something that happened in the house after Herman Stein's death. Yeah. And that picture... I said, that's enough for me. I want to build an episode around this. I don't know what the rest of this story is, but that picture is so compelling and so emotionally um, vibrant and so rich that, that I know there's a story here. And so I, I ended up connecting with this guy, David Schechter, who was Herman Stein's friend and musical executor and knew him probably better than anybody. And, uh, and he was the one who told the story about trying at one point when he wanted to do a, a, a reissue of Herman Stein's music on his record label about trying to track him down and being told that he was dead because the guy was so obscure at that point that he might as well have been dead. I think it had actually been reported in some places that he had died a few years before. And so he started cold calling to try to find him. And he left messages all over town. And one day his wife came into town and uh, came into the room and said, that dead guy's on the phone. 
So, you know, you hear these stories and, and the, the thing for me in those moments is not to gasp, laugh, or say thank you out loud. Yeah. Because you just want the moment, for audio purposes, you just want the moment to settle. You know, it's one of, the things, one of the habits that I've had to train myself out of, and I'm still training myself out of as a print writer. I've done years and years of interviews uh, for print. And you kind of lead people along through the interviews. You say, yeah, mm, okay, uh-huh, oh, that's interesting. Tell me more about that. You laugh. You know, you kind of lead, you give them oral or visual cues to kind of lead them through that. And the challenge for me is when, when I'm doing an interview and I have the great good fortune of somebody telling me something like that is not to jump up and down and start, and start laughing uh, because <laughs> it would obviously ruin the audio. Yeah. So I've had to kind of train myself to lead people along visually, nod silently. There's a whole series of adaptations that you make when you come from interviewing. When you, you know, you're, you're moving from one corner of the journalism world to another, and you kind of have to retrain some old behaviors. That's been a very interesting part of this process for me. It's interesting that you say that, and I... I I, short, I made a conscious effort to ensure that these interviews are on Skype because we can see each other now for the benefit of the listener. And I think as you're saying that, it's it's one of the the things that I'm able to do is have this nonverbal visual communication and even something simple as seeing when you're about to end a sentence or that you still have a thought that you're working through, you know, to not interrupt you. It's because when you're, it's just the audio, you feel, you just hear people constantly cutting each other off. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's very awkward, and it can screw with the results. Um, it's much better. I vastly prefer to do these interviews in person uh, if I can. But Skype, you know, Skype video is a, you know, I think is a reasonable uh, second choice for something like this. But you're right; it's very important to kind of have that visual contact. I'm looking in your video eyes as I say this, um, and they're and they're fabulous, by the way. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's it's very important to be able to kind of detect and respond to those cues as you as you wander your way through an interview because you don't know where the interview is going. You know, you, I think you said at one point in your interview with with Leah Tao, you know, you said you and it's this great dictum of of reporting and of a lot of things is you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. You know, you don't have a sense of where the interview is going, so you have to kind of be very alert in the interview to nuances. And those can be visual. They can be subtle. You're nodding right now. It can be something as subtle as a nod. Um, and all of those things can, can impact the way the interview goes and, and eventually end up impacting the results that you get. Yeah, totally agree. The other, uh, the other benefit of the medium is um, you can incorporate things into your story that uh, involve sound as well. And, and one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm referring to is the that recording session from um uh the beach boys yeah and uh like you mentioned in the show is something oh. that in the past would have been just cassette to cassette handed off and now it's something that's readily available but um i love the way you you sort of weaved it into the story yeah it's a story about uh, when the beach boys were recording what became the single version of of help me Rhonda. um they had a complicated contentious relationship with brian and Carl and Dennis's father, Murray, uh, who was a songwriter, who was their first manager. And he was a frustrated songwriter. And then, you know, the poor guy, all of a sudden, his son becomes the most revered songwriter in America. You know, that, that had to be a tough, a tough gig in that house. And as a result, 
you know, it was a very, there was a lot of bad stuff that happened in that house between the father and the sons. And that was kind of famously acted out in this recording session uh, for Help Me Rhonda, where Murray came into the studio and he'd had a few drinks and he dragged their mother in and he starts to boss the boys around over the talk back. And, uh, and it's, it's one of the, to me, it's one of the most heart-wrenching quotes in the history of music. Where, where Murray is trying to stage direct them through their vocals and Brian is kind of doesn't know what to do and he's losing control of the situation. And in the process of trying to browbeating, browbeat Brian into doing what he wants him to do, Murray says at one point, let's go, Brian, come on. You know, I'm a genius too, Brian. And it's just a moment that tears your heart out because yeah. there's so much, I mean, it's death of a salesman, you know, yeah. it's fathers and sons. Um, and so that clip was one of those clips that in the days before YouTube was kind of passed around cassette tape from hand to hand like the you know like uh orson wells uh doing the the wine commercial or buddy rich yelling at his musicians on the band bus now it's on youtube because everything's on youtube um and so i was able to incorporate that into the piece to illustrate a point that uh, peter ames carlin who's uh, one of my interview subjects for that piece and the author of a very very good book about the beach boys called catch a wave um, to illustrate one of the stories that he was telling about the relationship between the boys and and their uh, and their father, so you know you n- you never know where you're going to find good audio, and you sort of have to be you have to be alive to it, and you have to be open to it. It comes from all sorts of places. I imagine there must be a moment when you do find audio like that, or you have something that you you, you do uh, capture on tape that, uh, like you said, you in the back of your mind you're cataloging these and saying, "Whoa, this is." You know, I've got a gem here that I'm, that's going to fit nicely with the story that I'm telling. Yeah, there was a moment in the interview with David Schechter, the interview about Herman Stein, where um, where he said, uh, you know, I was really very close to Herman and uh, and he was old and he was sick and he would call me every day. He would call me at odd hours of the night. And I started I started saving his voicemails. Yeah. And I had that look on my <laughs> face that you have on your face on Skype video right now. And he said, because I, I, I felt like I was really close to the guy, but I knew he wasn't going to be around much longer. And it's, I don't know, maybe somehow I told myself, if I save these voicemails, then he'll never die. And I, and I said, I let that moment settle. And I said to him, do, do you still have those voicemails? And he said, yeah, I've got them on an old hard drive somewhere. I think I offloaded them. They're in a safe deposit box or something. Wow. And I said, um, do you think you could... <laughs> <laughs> do you think you could get me one? And he said, yeah. And then he was generous enough. And this is the thing, you know, people are generous. He was generous enough to actually go out and do whatever was involved in finding these voicemails and making MP3s out of them and sending them to me so that I was able to actually get the voice of long dead film composer Herman Stein into my story at the end as a kind of coda. And it gave me a moment after all of this you know, yak yak for 20 minutes about this guy to actually hear his voice as the kicker to the piece. I never would have been able to write that. And it was just this moment in the conversation that if, if I hadn't been paying attention, hadn't been attuned to what he was saying, could have just flown by. And it, it gave that piece a lift at the end that, uh, that I never would have been able to create for it on my own. Yeah, it definitely speaks to, uh, like you said, being open for those moments when they arise. Uh, it's fan- yeah, that's that, that's that's a fantastic episode. I love I love teasing out um, these episodes because, um, and I agree that we I, I don't like talking too much about them because I want to entice the listener to go and 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 hear the whole series because I think it's fantastic. Thank you. I want you to entice them. <laughs> so the concept of home is not always like a, a physical build. 
building. I just saw something get unplugged. I don't think it's related to this, so we'll continue. Okay, I'm um, still hearing you, so that's probably a good sign. <laughs> so um, sometimes it's a, a whole city like Amboy. Yeah, exactly. Amboy is this weird city in the Mojave Desert on the route of the old 66. It's 30 miles from anywhere. And anywhere in this case is a town called Ludlow, which is which is not much of anywhere itself. Um, and it's one of these towns in the desert that got that got passed by when the interstates came in in the 1950s. And it was at one time a thriving town in the desert where people would stop over to, to have their cars serviced, get gas in the desert, stop for a, a cold drink. And then it just kind of withered away and died. And without, you know, giving away the whole story, at one point, as this town was in the process of slowly collapsing into the sand in this unbelievably punishing environment that's now sort of forgotten because the highway has passed it by. A, a guy who runs a chain of chicken restaurants comes along and says, I want to buy that town. And he actually has the opportunity to buy the whole town. He's a guy named Albert Okura, and he's the founder of the Juan Pollo chicken chain in the Inland Empire here in California. And so that episode uh, was, uh, it was the story of how Albert Okura came to actually own a whole town and, and exactly what it is he wants to do with it, which is very interesting because it's not what people might think. You know, you might think that he buys this old town. It's got this kind of Route 66 pedigree, and people are are interested in Route 66. It's this romantic thing, and oh, so he's going to turn it into a Route 66 kind of tourist town. And that's not that's not what he has in mind. That's not his plan for the place. His plan for the place is more nuanced than that, more complicated than that. And what's involved in in keeping that town from literally collapsing into the sand um, is something that I think. Perhaps even he didn't anticipate when he bought the town 10 years ago uh, for $425,000 cash, um, which is really just the beginning of, uh, of his investment in that town. So it's a story about, uh, about one guy's uh, literal and emotional investment in a place that uh, most people would not find particularly hospitable. Yeah, it was, it was a couple of things that was going through my mind when I was listening to that. One is the maybe not so obvious reference to uh, Breaking Bad with Los Pollos Hermanos. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's, it's, I imagine it's a tough time to run a chain of chicken restaurants. Uh, well, particularly because this place is called, uh, is, is, is Juan Pollos yeah, is the yeah, name so. of, of his chicken chain. And I, and I managed to restrain myself from making uh, Gus Fring jokes while I was talking to the guy. Because the guy lives in Bakersfield and you got to drive, I don't know, however long it is, an hour, an hour and a half from Bakersfield just to get to to Amboy. He doesn't live in Amboy because he's not one of the five people who do. So yeah. we drove out there on a Sunday, which was very nice. So I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to start the interview by making a joke about Gus Fring for what I'm sure for this guy is the 10 millionth time. Yeah. The other was um, this concept of um, how and this naive notion that you can take these places out in the desert and, and think that you can build like an economy around them and without any without without any um future thought about the effects of nature i think one of your comments was the desert always figures out a way to win yeah and uh the reason i was thinking about this because we recently went out to joshua tree and we were on the south side this time and we went down to the salton sea Oh yeah, I'd love to. I've never been out there. I'm dying to go out there. And it may it's a fascinating be, place. And maybe in like another topic for a, a future story for you because I was just, we were just. It's it's beautiful from a 
just uh, nature. Well, it's not, it's not natural. First of all, yeah, it was, it was just it was filled in by when the, when the dam broke. So it's it's forty five miles long, and so you know you have this natural inclination when you see a body of water, get out and walk by the shore. But the minute you step out sure. of the car, the smell is like horrendous. It's yeah, and it's decaying, um, and it's just falling apart. And you see, obviously, you start doing some research, and you see how they were trying to build a resort town. And there's some footage from the fifties or sixties of people jet skiing or water skiing. Um, and I was reminded of that when I was hearing the story from uh, about Amboy as well. It's almost like uh, you forget that it, it would just take a, a couple of decades for just towns to be wiped off the map. Um, just, oh, not not even that. It's an unbelievably harsh and destructive uh, environment. It's just, it's an engine of destruction, the desert. Um, and Salton Sea, I mean, it's interesting, Salton Sea, which, uh, you know, you've described it really well. That's for people who don't know it. That's a really good capsule description of it. Um, and it's a, basically an inland sea and it's been dying for, I don't know, the last 30 or 40 or 50 years now, yeah. but people continue to live there cause it's their home. Um, and that was on the long list of, of, uh, story ideas for the first season. And then I had the idea to do the Amboy story and they kind of felt a little similar. And also, you know, honestly, I, I didn't want to be the 55th guy to roll out there from the big city and stick a microphone in somebody's face and say, well, how can you stand to live in this place? Um, and I couldn't figure out another angle on the story that wasn't that one because that one felt really stale to me. It felt, it felt hacky and it felt tired and it's their home, you know? And I, and the other thing is I kind of, I don't want to insult anybody, yeah. you know? So they have their reasons for staying, they're attached to it, you know, God, God bless them for that. Um, but it's, yeah, I mean, there's, there are all of these places in the desert that for various reasons, whether it's ecological like Salton Sea or, you know, economical and, and, and transport related, like, uh, like the Route 66 towns, uh, there are all these places that are just kind of literally melting into the sand. And this is the story of, of just one of them. In some ways, it's typical of those places. But in some ways, you know, largely because of Albert and the guys who work for Albert, Charlie Seves is his, is his right-hand man out there. And Charlie is an interesting guy in his own right. Um, you know, because of those guys, it's, it's atypical uh, as well. Have you heard of Salvation Mountain? No. So Salvation Mountain, it's right by the Salton Sea. It's this weird man-made mountain painted in these just bright colors. And um, there's biblical passages inscribed. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) I'm there. (laughs) Look it up when we're done, Salvation Mountain. So my wife had heard about it. And she's like, well, we're down here anyway. So it was like uh, an extra half hour half hour hour drive and it was so funny to actually see people out there tourists and stuff checking it out but and it's sort of a, like a folk art installation does yeah, the, it's just a the folk guy art. live out there yeah it's like i'm reminded of like close encounters of the third kind when he's building that that mountain on his of the mashed yeah, potatoes, out of mashed potatoes. <laughs> yeah yeah so it's yeah he's just man-made and the guy had intentions of living there at some point and now just people come visit it and there's volunteers that help to, to keep it up but it's, it's very bizarre sitting out in the middle of the desert that's a part of the desert I don't know very much about. And I would I would love to get out there at some point because, you know, it's interesting and it's cool. And I just I love the desert. There's something about the desert I really like. And, you know, God knows there's stories there. Yeah. And so um, and then the other area that wasn't wasn't so much an actual home was um, the the region of uh, the, the San Fernando Valley. Yeah. Yeah, that was episode five. It was an episode I called Growing Up 818. And I talked to 
uh, a few people who had grown up in the San Fernando Valley in the, well, from the 50s and the 60s and 70s. And, you know, it's an interesting place. If, if you live in Los Angeles, it's this kind of vast area out there that that people who live on the other side of the of the mountains that that kind of run down the middle of, of L.A. Um, and as the line of demarcation, you know, they think they know a lot about. But one of the things I discovered was that I didn't know as much about the valley as I as I thought I did. Um, it was a place that was both in the 50s and 60s. It was both the archetypical American suburb, the kind of leave it to beaver, Brady Bunch kind of suburb. But it was also this industrial powerhouse where they made cars and beer and bicycles and stereo parts and rockets, the rockets that went to the moon. Um, so it was a very interesting place and a place that's subject to a lot of, a lot of misconceptions, uh, at least around, around LA. And I think it was, it was one of those stories that I wanted to tell because uh, my, my thesis going in is that you could grab somebody in Toledo or Tokyo or Milwaukee or Switzerland. And if you said something about the valley, the odds were at least pretty good that they would have a sense that you were talking about the San Fernando Valley in Southern California. Uh, so that people have heard of it, but they might not know a lot about it. And I managed to find people who had experiences that were um, that were in some respects different, but in many respects were the same. You know, there were things that were common to that experience of growing up in the valley and uh, that to a large degree because of economic changes and demographic changes and just the passage of time uh, that that way of growing up uh, doesn't exist anymore. And it was, it was an interesting time and an interesting place. Yeah. I mean, I grew up on the Brady Bunch and I, I, you just had this feeling that it was like, you know, um, middle America or, or wherever it was, it was just the typical house of like what people from other countries when they think of America would think yeah, of. Yeah. And, and that house is still there. The yeah. Brady Bunch house is still there in the Valley and people drive by it and take pictures all the time. And I, I think you may have seen that I tweeted about it. Like as soon as I finished hearing, I'm like, who knew? Yeah. Like the, the house is, the Brady Bunch house is like 15 minutes away from me. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Go so, there now. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I'm that's on the, on the, on the map. Now I'm going to go check this out. And, uh, you never think about those things, but it was just in the valley. But it's, the valley's played an important role in, in a lot of movies. And I guess um, I think about like en Encino Man or Encino Man or Karate Kid. Even I remember there was a scene where he said, oh, "Where are you from?" And he and Ralph Macchio's character says, "I'm from the valley." And they're like, "Oh, the valley." They yeah. roll their, they roll their eyes at him. So yeah, yeah. Well, it it has this it has this identity for good or ill inside LA and out. You know, at one point in the early, I don't remember when it was, but I was in New York and I was working for Newsweek and I was having lunch with a friend of mine who had just gone to work for Details Magazine, which I, I think is just yeah, they folded. Just, they just folded. They just folded, yeah, yeah yep. Lifestyle Magazine. But it was this New Year's sort of very glossy, kind of yuppie-oriented Lifestyle Magazine. And he had just gone to work on the business side. And, uh, and we were having lunch one day and he was telling me that they were just getting ready to start a rollout an LA edition of details and that the tagline they'd come up for it, they come up with for it was it's not for people from the valley and i said jeff you're from the valley you grew up in encino and he said yeah yeah i know but still but still so there's this whole package of associations of of you know unhipness versus hipness and you know as a result Several generations of people from the Valley, through no fault of their own, kind of in the context of, of being at home in Los Angeles, growing up in Los Angeles, grew up with this chip on their shoulder because 
the valley was seen to be somehow unhip as a place to live, as a place to grow up. You know, it was seen to be, you know, out of the way, out of the cultural flow. And what I, the story that I tried to tell in this episode is that there was a whole lot more growing up there. I mean, there's this guy named uh, uh, Kevin Roderick. He used to write for the LA Times and now runs a very good website called LA Observed. And he was a kid in the Valley in the 60s. And he told me that one of his memories uh, was, uh, you know, for a time there in the 60s, uh, every night you would hear this rumble in the ground. And you could look over to the west, I think it was, toward Canoga Park, and the whole sky would be red. And they were testing the rockets that were going to send Apollo 11 to the moon. And that was an every night thing in their neighborhood. So they knew that they were a part of this great technological leap forward in, uh, in American industry and culture. But they got no respect from the kids who lived over the hill. So it was that kind of story. Yeah, and there was always the jokes about the valley girl, right? Right. Well, in the mid eighties, when that, when that whole thing came in, I mean, that must, I didn't get into that with these guys. Um, I meant to, I actually just forgot, but I'm sure that was a very difficult time in the Valley when, when that Valley speak and Valley girl thing was sweeping the nation. Cause man, that's not, <laughs> that's not the identity that you want to put forward, uh, as a cultural thing to the rest of the world. Certainly. No, not at all. So one of the other reasons I was so excited uh, to talk to you, Bill, is because of the history you've had in, in journalism. Um, I don't know that I like the word history. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, oh, but okay, I'm sorry, go ahead. What, what would you call it? Oh, I don't know. Experience. Experience. History makes me sound like I'm, <clears throat> like I'm, I'm, I'm 88 years old, <laughs> but, uh, but I, I actually kind of am. So I'm sorry, go ahead. Um, I'm wondering, you had a front row seat into like this seismic shift in how, um, news and and entertainment is consumed right because you yeah. were you were at newsweek and you were in print do you remember can you tie it to a specific moment in time when you realized that um print as you know it or as we know it was uh, on its way or or the beginning parts of its way out the door and this new form of communication was being ushered in yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I don't think there was a single moment when I was aware of it because I left Newsweek in 1990 to come out here and I worked in television for for the best part of that decade. And I stayed in touch with with my friends and, and colleagues from Newsweek through a lot of that time. But that was really the period during which, um, you know, news consumers began to lose interest in the notion of, you know, for lack of a better word, an oracular voice coming out every Monday to tell you what had happened during the previous week. You know, over the course of that decade, that idea became, it was absolutely blitzed by history and technology. Um, and so that, that happened a little bit after I had left. I had, you know, you might say the historic good fortune to kind of get out while the, while the getting was good, although that was, that was really an accident. And, and I have to say, in retrospect, that I'm very proud of having worked in Newsweeklies when Newsweeklies were a thing, you know. Time, Newsweek, you know, I was a young guy. I was in New York. I talk a little bit about this in the introductory episode, episode zero, for those of you who are keeping track at home. Um, You know, there was something about being a young guy starting out on your professional path and living in New York and coming up out of the subway and you walk past NBC, where I also worked for a time at 30 Rock. You walk past Time Inc. and you go to 49th and Madison, where the Newsweek building is. That was a whole lot of cultural and corporate power in a very small area. 
Um, and, you know, history has just moved the news business away from all of that. And is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? It's, it's not for me to say. Um, but it's, there's certainly been, you know, seismic changes uh, that I've, if I haven't had a front row seat to them, I've had maybe a, a, side, a side row seat to them. Um, you know, there's this, uh, news is a 24-hour business now. And I think that that has, um, you know, the effects of that have not always been salutary. Um, I'm one of those guys who, particularly during election cycles, used to sit and, and watch cable news all day long until one day I realized that my brain was actually turning to soup. Yeah. You know, I had, I had the voice of Chris Matthews in my head for nine months during presidential election campaigns, and there was no information being communicated. And so I, after a while, I made this, this willful effort to, uh, to at least turn off the television during the day and not have the 24-hour the news cycle feeding directly into my ears because that wasn't good for me, and I don't think it's good for anybody. All of that time to fill an endless news hole. There is no more news hole, right? It's just it's a bottomless pit of news, and yeah. all of that time to fill and all of that space, um, it's, there's just... It, I don't think it's been it's been um, useful to people in winnowing out what's good from what's bad. Now, the fact that people have much more direct uh, access to the people who make the stories, a good thing. The fact that the people who make the stories have um, much more direct access to the means of distribution, a good thing. Absolutely. But, uh, you know, certainly there have been there have been a whole lot of changes since I left the business. That's for sure. Which of the stories you did some pretty. Um well published stories um, and uh, cover stories on David Letterman, Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do any of those stand out as, as being memorable? The Letterman story was fun. Um, he was just starting to get, um, I guess it was, was he at CBS by then? I can't even remember. No, I think he was still at NBC. That's right. He was still at NBC when I did it. That's how long ago it was. And uh, it was long enough ago that one of the pegs for the story was, I remember one of the editors wrote in this phrase, uh, something about late night having sparked an orgy of time switching. And then in parentheses, it explained that that meant that people would tape the show on their VCRs and watch it the next day. And it was this, this radical thing. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I sort of, I got to, I got to hang out a little bit with Letterman and with, uh, with some of the people who worked on that show. And, uh, um, you know, he was a, he's just a fascinating guy. I miss him on the cultural scene. I think one of the problems with a guy, like Letterman being as good as he is for as long as he was, is that you take him for granted. Yeah. And I really miss him now that he's gone, you know. Um, he was so good at what he did for so long that I thought, well, he's always going to be there. You know, I don't have to tune in tonight. And uh, so I, 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 found, I find myself now wishing I had watched more of Letterman, wishing, I, wishing I'd watched more of Craig Ferguson when he was on, who, was, uh, the, who I was a big fan of but came to belatedly. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the Springsteen cover was interesting because I think I did it without ever actually talking to Springsteen. <laughs> they were, they were, uh, you know, they were trying to decide up until the last minute whether they actually wanted to give me access to him, and they didn't. I did interview him subsequently for a story that ended up on the inside when Tunnel of Love came out. So okay. I, I did finally get to sit down in a room with uh, with Bruce Springsteen, nice. uh, which was uh, which was fun. Um, and, uh, so yeah, there were some, you know, there were some, there were some big stories. One of the things that was great about working for a place like Newsweek 
um, particularly in the back of the book, was, you know, you never knew what you were going to do from week to week. And I had a beat there where I was very fortunate in being able to kind of, uh, I kind of designed my own beat there. And so I was writing a lot about entertainment and pop culture. And, uh, you know, those are those are things that have stood me in good stead. And the stuff that I learned there about reporting and storytelling and talking to people and extracting meaning from, from conversations, sometimes from people who don't necessarily want you to extract meaning. Um, you know, all of those skills uh, are things that uh, have been very useful to me in all sorts of ways and certainly are things that I'm, I'm putting into use now in, in doing this podcast. Yeah, it definitely seems like the, it's, that experience has served you well. Um, yeah, I wouldn't trade it for anything. You know, yeah. I, I have friends who, um, who, who passed through the place and, um, and they didn't have happy experiences there. Or they didn't think the product was very good and they're, they kind of, they kind of apologize for it now. And, and, you know, honestly, a lot of people now, you know, are of a generation where, um, where they kind of sort of don't know that there was a time when time and Newsweek, uh, were these colossus, colossi, colossuses in the, in the, in the landscape and yeah. that they set a lot of the news agenda. The idea sounds absolutely insane now, you know, uh, and justifiably so in the news environment that we live in now. But the notion that this magazine would come out after all of this stuff had happened and tell you what had happened and that that was the accepted, one of the accepted ways that news got disseminated seems absolutely crazy now. And and that to me is only a, you know, a signpost of how, dramatically things have changed in really a very short period of time. And, and my recollection of being there at that time is, you know, it was before, just before the wide dissemination of internet access. Mm -hmm. And man, that was a tidal wave that nobody saw coming. Yeah. This concept of them being the gatekeepers of, yeah. of information. So yes. Yeah, yeah. Now times. everybody's their own gatekeeper. Yeah. You know? yeah. 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 Every, everyone's their own podcaster. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. Or can be. The other uh, interesting tidbit I picked up um, online was that you like to let your dogs sleep with you. Yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't say like to, but at this point, it's a fait accompli here. You know what I mean? It's done. I wake up in the morning and I'm all I'm all bent over, and we've got two Labradors. We've got an 11 year old Labrador named Roxy and a, and a four and a half year old knucklehead, almost five year old knucklehead named Scout, both black labs. And yeah, my wife and I are, you know, I, I wrote about this for Fast Company yeah, so, uh, a, a year or so ago, which I, I think is why you're bringing it up. Um, and uh, they were doing a, an, a week of articles online about sleep. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, um, and my editor there, David Ledsky, who's also a good friend of mine, asked me to do this piece about, about people who uh, the term is co sleep. I discovered they co-sleep with their pets uh, and my wife and I co-sleep with our pets. And uh, there are a lot of people who do and the effects on your out. Oh, there you go. Hey, buddy. <laughs> For the listener, I'm, I'm showing Bill my Yorkie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would lift. I would lift Scout up, but she's such a moose that uh, strain my back. Um, and my back is already sore because we sleep with our dogs. You know, I wake up in the morning and I get out of bed and I'm all bent out of shape, but the dogs have slept very well. Yeah, that resonated because we let uh, ours sleep with us as well. And now it's... Uh, well, it's Yorkies, no, man. I mean, yeah. there's a difference between uh, a Yorkie and a couple of labs. Jeez. Yeah. Well, the, the, the takeaway there was that there is no turning back because once... That's right. Yeah. Once they're the, in, they're in. The dogs are totally in charge at this point. The dogs are driving the car. So... Yeah. Um, oh, a couple more questions. Um, what have you uh, changed your mind about recently? That's a really interesting question. 
Wow. You mean just in, in the podcasting world or I in general? What, in have general. I ch- what have I changed my mind about? Um, how long do I have? <laughs> we can edit it down. Don't worry. Because that's a big question. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to babble unattractive. You'll just edit this part out, right? Where I've, um, I don't know. I, I couldn't answer that specifically. I, I like to think that I've changed my mind about something important lately because I don't want to believe that, that, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm I'm the kind of person who whose opinions get uh, get get written in stone for all time. I think it's important to be flexible in your thinking and nimble in your thinking. Um, you know, I've certainly had to adapt to new things in my professional lifetime. Um, and you know, you're not gonna you're not gonna outrun history. You yeah. know, you need to. Uh, you know, wh- another one of the stories that I did is about this very interesting guy named Andy Puttickham who is an ex-Buddhist monk who yeah. uh, ended up in the tech sector in, in Venice, in California, in Venice Beach. And he co-founded this online meditation platform uh, called Headspace, which is very good. And I've been doing it for a while. And one of the things that a practice of meditation teaches you is that change is constant. Change is inevitable. Life itself is change. And so you have to you have to be okay with that. You know, you have to be able to roll with change. So I hope that, you know, through that practice and just through, you know, being an adult person walking around on the planet, uh, you know, I hope I've been intelligent enough to know that, uh, that you, you have to be open to change. You have to be flexible to it. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Yeah. What's, uh, what do you think the biggest challenges are going to be as you, as you look to grow the show? Um, <sighs> That's, that's also an interesting question. Um, I just think, I think discovery is a really big thing. You know, on one of your episodes, I think it was the one with Rob McGinley Myers, you were talking about Swell, mm-hmm. this really good podcast app yeah. that, that was only out there for a couple of months and then Apple bought it up. And I loved Swell and, and they shut it down. And apparently they're going to roll that functionality into the podcast app at some point. They say maybe, but I ain't using the podcast app. You know, yeah. I'm not, I'm never going back to that. I'm a big fan of Overcast. I'm a big fan of Castro. Um, but discovery is, you know, is an ongoing issue in, yeah. in podcasts. Um, you know, how do you break through? How do you make a place for your podcast to stand in this very crowded landscape and create the opportunity for people to come to it? One of the things that was great about Swell, for people who don't know what we're talking about, was that it was... Um, I think they kind of positioned it as like the cliche is it's Netflix for blank is like it's Netflix for podcast, yeah. but it was this thing where you would listen to something and then it would immediately move you forward to another thing that it algorithmically thought you would like. And I discovered a lot of really interesting content that way. You know, there is so much content and the iTunes store is the de facto engine of distribution for 99% of the podcast world. And it's a terrible way yeah. to discover new stuff. Um, you know, a lot of stuff about it that's good, but man, you know, good or bad, it just, it's there and there's no getting around it. And, you know, one of the things that's been disappointing to me is that, uh, is that they haven't figured out a better way to facilitate discovery because there's so much good stuff out there. And at this point you just have to stumble on it by accident. So I think that, you know, in the case of my show, my hope is that, you know, I mean, thanks to you for having me and, and to Devin and Eric at, at, at the timbre for, you know, for kind of being on my side. Um, you know, it's just a matter of, of getting out there and banging the drum as loud and as hard as you can without burning all of your bridges among your friends and acquaintances. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of the things I did was, you know, initially in that you got to get into that social media sphere, right? So I set up the Facebook page and I set up the Twitter account and now I have my personal account, 
I have my personal Facebook page and my home stories from LA Facebook page. And I have my home Twitter account and I have my home stories from LA Twitter account. And trying to figure out what content goes into what channel is a challenge for me. Um, Because you don't want to, there's, you can only exploit your friends and acquaintances (laughs) up to a point before they're going to start getting pissed off. Right. So you don't want to pour all of your podcast content into your personal bucket because then you will burn people out. The challenge for me going forward is to break through that membrane of people that I already know and get my my podcast exposed to a wider audience. And it's hard for a couple of reasons. One is that, you know, as I say, discovery is, is a nut that nobody has yet really cracked to my satisfaction in the podcast world. And the other is, you know, my show is not celebrity oriented. It's not celebrity driven. It's not, it's not about Star Wars. It's not about the NBA finals. It's a, stor- it's a specific story driven podcast that people are just going to have to find. Um, you know, I, one of the things I put on my Twitter, my home stories from L.A. Twitter feed a couple of weeks ago was a question that I sort of wanted to put out there was, what's the worst, most discouraging piece of advice you've ever received? Because I really wanted to hear from fellow podcasters about that. And yeah. I can tell you what mine is, if you're interested. Sure. <clears throat> I went mm, a month or so ago. A friend of mine, his, uh, his mother passed away. And Jennifer and I went to... Uh, this lady's memorial service and their son, one of their sons is a good friend of ours. I hadn't seen him for years. And we went to this lovely memorial service and, uh, and the son uh, made a beeline to me uh, across the backyard and stuck out his hand. And before I could say, I'm sorry for your loss, he started telling me how much he loved the podcast, which was <laughs> very weird, but very gratifying. And he's this really good guy. He's a really generous guy. He's a novelist. Yeah. And he said, you know, I know this publicist in New York, and I think you two would really hit it off. And I said, that's great, because I'm, I'm looking for ways to kind of break this thing out. And I thought about maybe getting with a publicist. But, you know, I don't know if there are publicists who handle podcasts. So, you know, I could use some help. So he said, great, let me connect you two. And by the end of that day, he had, he had started an email chain, and I was in connection. I'd been connected with this person in New York. She'd been connected with me. We set up a time to talk the following week. I get her on the phone and uh, a few days later, and she says, well, I'm not taking on any new clients right now. So I thought, oh, okay, great. Then what are we talking about? And she said, but I'd be happy to talk to you. She said, oh, okay, great. And I said, so, you know, is there anything that you think I ought to know? And she said, well... <laughs> This is one of these no good deed goes unpunished stories, right? She said, well, there's one thing you should do above all. I said, great. What's that? Because I think I'm about to be handed the keys to the kingdom, right? And she says, interview more celebrities. (laughs) And I thought, okay. So here I am in the land of SEO again, right? Master of the obvious there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Because clearly she had never heard my show. She had no, and you know, I mean, the shows that interview celebrities, that's fine. It's just not what I happen to do. Um. And but so I mean I know you talk a lot on your show about the entrepreneurial class of podcasts, you know, of which I have a kind of a horror, uh, <laughs> because and, right, I, and rightfully so. Well, I, you know, for good or ill, I I do, and it's probably to my detriment because you know honestly, could I could I handle SEO better for my show? I probably could. Could I handle publicity better? I probably could, but you know, having having come out of print and then written journalism for a while. First, you know, I wrote for a while for this site called True Slant that ended up being folded into Forbes. So I was writing a lot of online journalism for a time. And, you know, inevitably, inexorably, what happened over that time was that SEO became king. 
And in ways that were first subtle and then not so subtle, everybody got encouraged to write for SEO, Mm. which I think is a very pernicious thing because it throws the notion of of quality content out the window. You know, you're writing for hits, 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 hits. So, I mean, all of that is a long way around to saying, you know, this this thing about marketing and promotion is a very tough nut to crack for individual small players in the space like me. You know, the. The, 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 the head side of that coin is everybody gets to be their own um, publisher. Everybody gets to be their own network, and that's great. The tail side of the coin is everybody has to be their own publicist and their own marketing department, and that's something that's very, very different. And so a challenge going forward is balancing actually doing the thing with talking about the thing, with flogging the thing. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think that's something that every podcaster runs into and finding the balance between doing the work and friggin' talking about the work is, is a constant challenge. Definitely agree. But I think, um, quality content, uh, cream rises to the top, right? And so I think people have found your show because it's good. Thanks. I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. And I think, uh, if you just continue to do what you're doing, you know, I'm, I wanted to speak to you because you're putting out a kick-ass show, you know, just, and you know, the, the, the folks at the timbre have promoted you because you have a kick-ass show. So I think, it, um, that's one of the ways to get heard, right? Just absolutely make, make good shit, right? <laughs> yeah. And keep doing it, you know, be consistent, yeah. put it out there. I mean, I, I'm, I'm in a, in a little bit of an interregnum now. I've taken a, a break for December because, you know, one of the things that I did well accidentally at the beginning of this was I went out and stockpiled a bunch of recording of, of reporting rather in June and July and August for I was reporting more or less full time in July and August for stories that I ended up uh, putting out in September, October and November. Um, <clears throat> and it just being me doing everything and being a reporting intensive show, um, reporting becomes a very important part of the process, but it's also very, very time intensive. Not only the doing of it, but the arranging of it, the finding the people, the fitting into their schedule. Um, so I am taking this break now, but uh, plan to come back in January with all new episodes. You know, I, I mean, honestly, I, 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 I hesitated to even take the break that I knew I had to take in December because you do want to be consistent. You want to put stuff out there on a regular schedule. Don't make people come looking for you. You know, yeah, people have to know that the thing is out there. It's you're doing it professionally and routinely and reliably and that it's going to land in their podcatcher on a on a reliable basis. I think so. I, I think you're right. I think consistency is, you know, is, is a big part of it as well. Yeah. And the other thing is, uh, don't, don't hesitate to put out just an, a quick, you know, five minute episode like you did with the preview of, of uh, season two, just say, Hey guys, uh, I, I found these papers that I'm looking at. I'm excited about what's coming up. It's so, so just coming to tease people about what's coming. And so you don't yeah. completely fall out of, uh, out of mind for people. There's so much competition going on. And obviously if they've subscribed, they'll still see your updates. But I, I mean, I, I, even your little update on season two, I was looking forward to seeing what you had to say. So it's just like, you know, your regular fans like to hear from you. So just, you know, keep that in mind. Just keep yeah. us, keep us uh, engaged. A- absolutely. And one of the things I am doing in this period now around the holidays and into January before there are new original episodes is um, I- I've sort of been playing around with this notion of DVD extras. Yeah. I'm, t- I'm taking some stuff that uh, for-, for various reasons, it didn't make the cut to go into the episodes, but is really interesting. It's off topic. It's off brand. 
for my show, which was a thing that mm, I sort of struggled with. And I eventually decided these are really interesting people who had interesting things to say that just didn't happen to make the cut. So I've been cutting those into little two, three minute pops, doing just a little bit of, pr- of production on them, put a little bit of music under them, edit them minimally and just put them out there for people, even though they're not strictly uh, relevant to the idea of home. You know, they're just they're interesting people like Denny Tedesco, the guy who directed the Wrecking Crew documentary, mm-hmm. talking about, um, you know, this notion that it was scandalous that the monkeys didn't play on their own records. Well, that was the thing that had no place in my story about him growing up in the valley. But, uh, you know, ended up being an interesting little nugget that was kind of floating out there free. So I'm going to be putting some more of those out there over the over the coming weeks uh, between now and the time when I come back with new episodes in January. I, I have no shortage of ideas for you. So you can call that home stories from the attic. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great. That'll be the first spinoff home stories from the attic. The remnants. But then uh, just put like, you know, just put bonus in the, in the title. So when people scan through, if they want to skip it, they can skip it. But you know, people love yeah. bonus content anyway, so they're going to consume it. But yeah, yeah I, I totally like, you know, put it out there and fans of the show will eat it up. I'm, 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 I'm going to do my best to, uh, to keep that connection open between now and the time when, uh, when new episodes come back. Very good. Well, Bill, this has been, uh, a conversation that did not disappoint. Um, and I was really looking forward to it and I'm glad we got the chance to talk. Thank you so much, Harry. It's, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. I love the show and I'm, uh, I, I really appreciate your, uh, your getting in touch. Thank you. Uh, so what's the best way for folks to track you down? Uh, homestoriesla.net and through the iTunes store. Okay. Thanks again. And uh, wishing you and your family an amazing holiday season as well. Thank you, Harry. Same to you. I really appreciate it. Take care. Hope you enjoyed that. That was uh, a lot of fun. And I I really knew, uh, like I said at the top, when when I I was able to finally book him, I was really happy, actually, because um, I I knew when he reached out and I listened to the episode that at some point he was going to be, I just knew he was going to be on Podcast Junkies. And uh, sooner than I would have thought, and we actually squeezed it in as the last episode, last official episode of the year. So um, I appreciate uh, Bill making the time for that. So uh, make sure you check out the show notes where we talk, uh, we list everything we talked about at uh, podcastjunkies.com slash 70. Don't forget that we are a member of Podcastica, a fantastic uh, group of podcasts that uh, you should check out at podcastica.com. A couple of the folks on the network did some uh, shows about, or did a show about uh, Star Wars, obviously. Anyone who had any sort of reason to do a show, to do a show on that topic because they were sci-fi or even um, the Walking Dead folks, they did they did one as well because uh, there's a break in the season. So uh, there's a couple of episodes uh, there that cover what I think was an amazing movie. I think it was really really fun and and just perfect from an entertainment perspective. And it I was really surprised at how much I uh, was affected by some of the. Um, this, the storylines, and it just remind, it, it literally just takes you back to when you were a kid sitting in a theater. And this is 1983, so let's just say I was in my uh, early teens, uh, <laughs> very early. <laughs> and I, I, I really re- remember the whole series, four, five, and six, and to see some of those characters back on the screen again was really, really uh, heartwarming. And I went with my wife, and we just had a blast. And we saw it at the, at the, man, at the Chinese theater here in Los in Los Angeles, in Hollywood. So um, 
to add to the dramatic effect. It was it was a lot of fun. So uh, check those out, and uh, they they you can sort of relive your memories of the movie through the uh, the podcast episodes. So um, highly recommend you do that. Thanks again to Cedar and Soil for providing the intro outro music. Check them out at cedarsoil.com. Don't forget to subscribe. It's a very important thing to do to show support for the podcast. And you can do that at iTunes. So head on over to podcastjunkies.com slash iTunes. And uh, if you only do one thing, it's going to be to subscribe because that's the best way to get the new episodes. There's a a ton of uh, new episodes in the can that um, I'm in the process of getting produced. I've already got interviews recorded with uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Morgan Dix, who is um, has a meditation podcast, which is really, really enlightening. Um, it's one of the deepest conversations we've had in a long time. So that's actually coming up next. And then Peter, uh, pa- Peter, oh, he's going to kill me. <laughs> Patrick, Patrick Keller. Sorry, Patrick. Um, I'm, and I'm going to leave that in there. Uh, he's up, coming up as well. And Patrick is one of my number one fans and uh, had to reach out to him to talk about Big Seance podcast. And then a dear friend of mine locally, uh, Esprit Devora from We Are LA Tech. So those are just some of the folks I've got lined up. So you definitely want to subscribe. You want to know when those episodes pop into your podcatcher of choice. And then the other thing you can do is just let people know again, remind people of the show, let them know that there's a cool new podcast on the block. Well, not really new, but um, something they should check out. So recommend people check out podcastjunkies.com. And then uh, ratings and review, uh, those are always, always welcome. So the other thing uh, I've done is create an affiliate affiliates page. And so I've been um, aware of a lot of services that I use on a regular basis and that I recommend. And so what I've started to do is compile those all on the website um, at podcastjunkies.com slash affiliates. And if uh, there's any other services that you need, anything from web hosting to graphic design um, to podcast hosting, then I highly recommend you check that out. I'm building it up as I as I get these uh, affiliate links built. I'll add them to the page. But uh, that's a great, great way to support the show if, you, if you're in the need for any of those, if you know anyone that does. And again, always the uh, the Amazon button on the main page is a list of all podcast-related equipment on Amazon, and that's um, that goes uh, a long way towards supporting the show as well. So as people start purchasing through there, um, I may take a cue from uh, one of my favorite podcasts, Tangentially Speaking, and read off some of the products that people buy, because I think uh, listeners get a kick out of that. So that's um, on the agenda to do. So thanks again for all your help and all your support in spreading the word. Uh, the show is growing uh, a little bit every week, and I really appreciate it, and I really love to see the numbers go up. So I definitely want to make a, a strong push for that in the new year. Um, I'm going to be at a couple of uh, conventions as well, and um, I'm planning to record one more episode, a sort of end-of-year bonus, not um, nothing with a guest, but I think something I can squeeze in. So uh, I won't say Happy New Year yet, uh, and that, that will just... Uh, uh, push me to get that episode recorded, even if it's a short one. I think uh, I want to do something where I collect my thoughts and uh, just think back about the year the 2015 that was. So 
Um, obviously, you're sticking around for the uh, retention hashtag. And I think um, what we'll do in honor of uh, Bill and the fact that um, he's talking about home, uh, let's see, we'll do uh, phone home. Yeah, hashtag phone home. Phone home Bill. There we go. <laughs> I, as you can tell, I just made that one up on the spot, but I think uh, we'll do a little ET reference and a little uh, uh, home reference to his podcast. So phone home, Bill, hashtag phone home, Bill. Um, and uh, he's at uh, Bill Barrow and I'm at podcast underscore junkies. And I'll have the Twitter accounts in the show notes as well in case, um, because I think he has one for the podcast as well. I think it's home stories uh from la so i'll look that up i'll put that in the show notes thanks again to, for listening uh to this extra long episode i hope you really enjoyed it and if you did um some comments would be really uh really fun to read so take care guys have a fantastic week <laughs>